Good morning and welcome to Legal Events with Kirk and John. Oh my gosh, that was quite a dramatic theater voice. I try to outdo myself every, I know, every week. I, it's, it's, it's impressive. I always I get mean, such compliments. Were you on Broadway? Okay. I'm, I'm working on it. Okay. That's All right. Well, second. I mean, they're closed down, which is why you're here practicing <laughs> so, law now. That's why I'm here. Yeah. yeah that's, okay. This is my other job. Otherwise, you would be like, I don't know, an Annie or like yeah. My Fair Lady I always or something. wanted to play the little girl in Annie. <laughs> You know, you know, actually, but if I, I wait long enough, I could be to Daddy Warbuck. Play, I go. That looks so much like Kirk. That's weird. <laughs> it's my red curls. <laughs> so we were just talking. We were just talking about. Um, was it Steve Bannon that you were Steve, mentioning? Steve Bannon. Yeah, he he's the gift that keeps on giving to um, uh, lawyers for legal questions. Anyways, uh, <laughs> or lawyers know, that have radio shows. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, he. Uh, was character for sure, and uh, a pivotal member of the Trump White House at one point until I guess Donald Trump had a bad hair, bad hair day and let him go. Mm. Um, although it was kind of murky about how all that had happened, but in an, an attempt to rehabilitate himself, he began a, a nonprofit, um, supposedly nonprofit, I guess, uh, called Build the Wall, where they were going to privately fund. Um, building of the border wall at the southern border. Now, um, as a matter of just like public policy, I'm not sure that's even permissible. Uh, I'm not sure. Was it going to be one of those things where you could like have your name on a brick? (laughs) I I don't know if they, I don't know if they drilled down that far into it, but, um, uh, but they raised $25 million and he's accused along with three others of pilfering those funds for their own benefit. And he himself is accused of um, taking about $1 million worth um, through various means. And so the president, in his final flourish of pardons prior to his departure, uh, pardoned um, Mr. Bannon of this federal charge. And the reason that's interesting, there's two reasons it's interesting, is one is that now, he, because of his pardon, he appears to be stripped of his Fifth Amendment right. Am That's right? true. That is true. Now, yeah. and also exposed to state charges because all of those individuals who gave, every place that somebody gave something, there's venue uh, existing, jurisdiction existing for prosecution at the state level. And certainly in New York. Well, wait, wait you, you could still maintain your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent on the state level, right? Well, well that, mean, was, that, was the first, that was the first hurdle I was going to get over. Okay? Yeah, okay. So now we've cleared that hurdle. So the next hurdle for him is um, uh, what do we do about uh, the, the federal charge that exists? Because he was charged in a multi-defendant indictment in federal court. And the other three people, which apparently the president didn't see fit to, to include in this, mm-hmm. in this grant of mercy, uh, are still facing trial. But his name is still on the indictment. His, Steve Bannon's name is still on the indictment, and his lawyers moved to dismiss him out. And the government is opposing that. And this is what I found fascinating. The government's opposing that because they want it to be a matter of record. They still want this to be something that is part of the record. And that's a term that lawyers use all the time. We want it to be part well, of it, there's, a record. There's an interesting aspect, an interesting angle on that because we do have laws in Wisconsin that provide for 
um, the removal of reference to dismissals and acquittals, um, which, it, which, by the way, is not something that is, you know, um, an automatic legal, well, legal right. You're, what you're referring to is CCAP. Right. And that is, for those who don't know, CCAP is an online version of what you would find at the clerk of court's office in any given county in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what Kirk's talking about there is this provision where after two years, misdemeanors fall off of CCAP if you were dismissed or you were found not guilty, and which I thought was absolutely appropriate. But at the clerk's office, the record's still there. Sure. And as a matter of record, it still shows what happened. But, you know, clients ask me about that all the time. Like, is there some way to, you know, completely get this off my record? And, and it, it raises the interesting question that we've been kind of uh, focusing on for it, with the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers working with various legislators, some of whom are actually, you know, uh, tough on law Republicans, um, to have to expand the criteria for which someone could apply for expungement of their record. But it's related to this topic in the sense that no matter what happens to, you know, the conviction in terms of how it's treated, it's always, it always happened. You know, if someone gets a dismissal or, or for that matter, an acquittal, the theory behind why it shouldn't necessarily be removed, and I've heard this from uh, particularly clerks in different uh, jurisdictions, clerks of court, that it, it, we're supposed to be operating under a completely transparent system. And I suppose back in the day when we wanted to make sure that all trials were open, fair, and public, it was to avoid there being, you know, backroom deals and that kind of thing, handshakes in, the, in chambers over stuff, so that everything's done in the sunlight. Um, so to speak. And I think the idea was that if you're, if you're acquitted, you know, you're in good company along with some of our white haired, uh, I mean, white wigged people that were tried of offenses and acquitted of them and, and walked down the street proudly saying, I am an acquitted person. I am innocent. <laughs> well, at least acquitted. At least acquitted. Yes. Um, but the modern understanding of how easy it is to find dirt on somebody and use it against them, regardless of whether they were found guilty or not. I mean, it's, it's a bit of an acknowledgement of the fact that people will judge based on what someone's accused of, even if found not guilty. But here's the thing that's interesting about this Bannon situation. And, and I, I know where you're going with this, that you know there should be some sort of record that shows what happened, right? Well, what, all you got to do is look at the New York Times and look in their archives, you know, from now until forever, and it'll be there, right? I mean, everything you want to know about what happened, including the fact of the pardon, is not only public knowledge, but broadcast. So I, I have uh, conflicting feelings about this because, and, I, and, I, and I'm not advocating one or the other, because on the one hand, yes, absolutely, when you receive a pardon, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into a rant about how reckless I think all of most all of Trump's pardons were, uh, and they were abuse of that power. But I think having the pardon power um, was a wise thing to include um, in both the federal constitution and most of the state constitutions. But when you have that, it's supposed to do what it implies it would do, which is to wipe your 
wipe, wipe your record clean and give you sort of a fresh start. Yeah. And, and, um, and so leaving something that was, to quote, part of the record to keep your name on an indictment, it seems to be contrary to that. I don't know. I could be totally wrong about that. I have no idea what the, you know, if there's any judicial opinions on this at all, actually. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a difficult, it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike, you know, because you want, you want to have, you want to have a record of everything that happened. Like you said, there should be some transparency. We and I depend on it when we look at things up and mm-hmm. we want to know, you know, what's going on with a particular case or what's, you know, what the overall trend of cases are uh, for a particular charge or whatever, you know, we depend on those records mm-hmm. as do um, every member of the media, right. for example. Um, and I think one of the things that, that really strikes against this whole keeping the record thing is the practical effects of all this. So Steve Bannon's a very high profile you know, example of this, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were wrongly arrested or were acquitted or had their cases dismissed or whatever, and they still have some record of it that employers look at, mm-hmm. that landlords look at, that Even though they're not spouses, supposed to use that as a decision. And for- they're absolutely <laughs> not supposed to. In fact, it says that right on CCAP. Right it says on CCAP. You're, not, you're not allowed to use this as a reason But to of course, everybody does. And that's, of course. that's one of you're the like, big... Oh, well, I'm not going to do that. That's one, Wait, of the big, that's one of the big problems. So yeah. it's... So it's this, it's, it's a, you know, it's a delicate balancing act. It really is between, you know, openness and transparency and then, you know, somebody's right to some sort of semblance of privacy and or they're, you know, having their lives back. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the Steve Bannon example is probably a little, you know, off base in terms of what the real considerations should be because I'm sure he'd be the first to tout his, you know. Pardon, <laughs> he's not going to deny that it ever happened, right? Right, right. right. But uh, I think you're right in the general masses and how people are treated in these situations. Well, I have, I have another aspect of this that I'd like to talk about when we come back, right after these messages. So stay tuned. We're back with we more on a gorgeous Saturday morning. We survived another commercial break. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if we'll still be around um, when the commercials I, are done. I never wonder. I just don't know what form you it have will faith. be. Hey, there could be a comet that strikes the building <clears throat> in between the, the you know the parts of our show. I think I saw a comet last night, and um, I don't know. I, it it looked like Annie. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> How but, many whiskeys did you have? <laughs> um, we were talking about the pardon power, and then as a follow up to. Uh, when someone receives a pardon, whether or not the government should maintain a record of what happened, what the person was charged with, what they were indicted with, and the fact of a pardon. And I thought of something else that's an interesting angle on this. Um, And this surprises people, especially clients that end up in this situation that I I meet with and that I represent. But um, when it comes to other acts, and what I mean by that, that's A-C-T-S, not A-X. Other acts. I I got it. I got it. Um, Evidence. And what that means is that if one side or the other wants to introduce um, facts of something else that happened other than what the person is charged with because the proponent of that evidence believes that it's relevant to one of the elements of an offense the person is charged with, it does not have to be limited to convictions or for that matter, 
uh, judicial proceedings. And take it a step further, there's Seventh Circuit case law. And I think even, conduct. Yes. And I think even U.S. Supreme Court case law that says uh, conduct that later resulted in an acquittal, like a finding of not guilty, can still be used as other acts evidence against an accused. That is really just, yeah, that's absolutely remarkable. And um, uh, and the same is goes uh, to sentencing, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get convicted of an offense and they want to bring up your criminal history, well, they can bring up stuff that you were acquitted of. Yep. Acquitted. And, you know, I always find the argument on this fascinating because the reason why we're so proud, and I say that in air quotes, of our uh, criminal justice system in the United States is that we have the highest burden of proof on the prosecution that exists on the planet and probably the universe, depending upon what season of Star Trek you're, you're operating There are certain in. sectors of the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I can't, I can't. The Gamma Quadrant. The Gamma has Quadrant. A, they have a higher burden. Of yeah, yeah. But they also have three <laughs> eyes and a unibrow. On the so, planet M nine seven one. That's yeah. That's a tough show there. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. So yes, on the one hand, we tout that as if to say this is uh, why we enjoy our freedom so much. We can be so confident in people not being wrongfully convicted. Yet when it comes to something, you know, almost as important um, as whether or not someone's convicted of a very serious charge. That same conduct, and when I say conduct, that's kind of a a misnomer because what it really means is the evidence that was gathered by the police in a prior case. Not not necessarily facts, but facts as we treat them in court, can later be used against somebody else for something else uh, in perpetuity, forever. And The rationale behind why this is allowed is because, well, the person was acquitted, sure, but that's because they had such a high burden of proof. It doesn't mean that the person's innocent. It doesn't mean the person didn't do A, B, and C. And of course, what's the prime example of that in history? Oh, um, I, you know. OJ. Oh, right, sure, sure, OJ. And not only does everybody think he's guilty, okay, because, Whatever, you know. Oh, but I know then, what you can say. Yeah. But then he gets sued civilly yep. on a completely different burden of proof, of course, mm-hmm. which is preponderance of the credible evidence. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and they'll go after what's really important, money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But I was going to say, yeah, that the thing where he got in trouble in Las Vegas for... Oh, that was... You know, and... and that too. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that didn't sound like that big of a deal. I mean, they broke into a room and... You know, he had. He said, "I thought we were there to retrieve some stolen memorabilia. Whether that's BS or not doesn't really matter. But it's not. You know, he, he's someone without a criminal history, technically, right? Right. Right. <laughs> and he ends up getting like this massive sentence for that. Yeah, I think he got was, sixteen years. Yeah, yeah, for and something that would normally not be much at all. Uh, I mean, I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying that that's not the kind of thing that a first-time offender goes. But I'm I'm sure that the uh, the universal opinion corrupt into that case that dude got away with the murder yeah you know so now we're gonna tag him for real good yeah yeah and then that happens actually a lot in just you know garden variety everyday cases where you know a judge might look at um some defendant who had a series of dismissals for example so maybe people didn't show up or maybe he actually beat it on the merits i don't know whatever the case right. is but the judge looks at that and has the feeling that's not based on evidence, but has a feeling that this person has been, you know, gaming the system and is getting away with it. And so 
on this conviction, I'm going to max him out because that's what I think needs to happen. Right. And 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 so um, then it kind of renders meaningless acquittals. It renders meaningless dismissals. Well, it points out there really is no mechanism uh, as part of court proceedings that truly, as a fi- as a finding, that someone is innocent and should never have been charged or any of that. I mean, the best you can do is an acquittal or a dismissal, but then there's all those implications that go with it. You know, judges do this all the time. I hear it all the time. Well, Mr. So-and-so had charges in 1997 of uh, felony, blah, 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 but then uh, it was ultimately dismissed. That could be because the prosecution was missing a witness or they lost the subpoena or the judge was sick that day or and they speculated all the reasons why all the preposterous reasons why someone might uh, rank, wriggle themselves Implying, out of the conviction. of course, that he was still guilty. Yeah, right. Very guilty. Sure. And um, therefore, oh, and then there's, the then there's the old trick where it's like, okay, someone ends up, I, I have a case right now where we're arguing over whether something should be counted as, um, and it's not counting as a conviction because that's a completely separate thing. But in terms of the significance due to age and... Uh, relevance of an event that occurred. And the prosecutor, sure enough, is in there saying, well, judge, this started off as a very serious felony. And the fact that it was reduced to an ordinance and and he paid a $50 fine isn't the point. It's that it started off so serious. And the natural question from the judge is like, okay, well, if we're only going to look at how serious the DA's office thought it was when they first charged it and then later decided they were wrong, um, how is that an argument in support of treating this like a more serious offense than it was? Well, it's through plea bargaining and, you know, there was a concession, blah, blah, blah. This idea that you can read some form of, you know, uh, credibility into how bad the conduct was based on the arbitrary charges that were picked by the district attorney's office. You could charge anybody with anything, okay? Yeah, And then, And the, the real funky thing that happens is that, yes, we do have procedural protections whereby, uh, you know, if it's a felony matter, you get a preliminary hearing. You've heard us talk about this before on the show, but... They it used to mean something. It used to mean... It used to mean well, those, both those words meant something preliminary, like, you know, it's going to happen before anything else of significance happens. And then hearing, as in, like, testimony, right? Yeah. And now actual it's witnesses. actual witnesses. Not somebody who, not the janitor from the hallway that comes in and, and they say, hey, can you read? Yeah. Well, can you read that complaint that we already provided to the defendant that isn't evidence at all? Yeah. It says, uh, yeah, it says the guy's guilty. Okay. Yeah. Nothing else. <laughs> you know, and then, but then you get limited on your questions. He's only, based on the, he's only barely paraphrasing an actual hearing. Folks. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. And the prosecutors flaunt it. They, they love to, uh, ex, you know, exhibit how silly it is uh, an exercise, you know, because they're trying to get rid of them all together. But anyway, <clears throat> you have all these supposed procedural safeguards to prevent, you know, someone from being detained too long. It's the first time that a neutral and detached magistrate has an opportunity to examine what, you know, to have a second look at a charging decision. However, as you will know, Attorney Birdsall. Yes. You can have one felony that is proven, you know, to the level of probable cause, and then 25 other felonies that they offer no evidence on whatsoever, and as long as they can claim that it's transactionally related, related, they can pack it full of anything they want. Of course. 
so that that's such a weird rule because if you think about why we even have preliminary hearings, it's there because it's supposed to be a check, a judicial check on the executive power to charge anything mm-hmm. they feel like. Okay. Yet we have this other rule that says that the judge only needs the things like that cost. come to be looked upon by, for example, members of the legislature as a defense trick or a hassle. <laughs> um, oh, a hassle for sure, but more like, you know, pampering. Yeah. We're pampering them with all these hearings. Why are we having so many hearings? Hearings. Hearings um, are bad. Hearings are really interrupting the uh, railroad. Of, the, fl- the flow of r- guilty pleas. The railroad <laughs> up to Wapan, because that's what we're trying to facilitate. And, and I'm, I know I'm making somewhat light of all this, but um, it's kind of, there's a lot of truth to it, actually. Yeah. And, well, hold uh, your thought all there, right, pal, because we're going to come back right after these messages. Oh, we'll be back. We are back. We're back. No, but I uh, did one little wrap-up thing about the whole Steve Bannon issue that started yep. that half an hour's worth of <laughs> diatribe, babbling. I mean, discussion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, you know, there's another reason, and the, I, the reason I got into this other acts thing is that, um, you know, if you want to look at some way of finding. A, a fairer resolution or some manner of protecting people from the inferences that can be drawn from being charged with something and then later having it not result in a conviction or a reversal or an acquittal or a dismissal or whatever the case may be. And I suppose that same philosophy could apply if you're interested, a citizen is interested in not having whatever they were charged with that ultimately was decided to have been not a an appropriate prosecution in the in the eyes of one person. Um, anyway, it, so that these things don't necessarily come back in another context. I mean, I suppose that's a legitimate argument. You could say, I, I don't want, if I'm ever in trouble again, uh, for it to come up that I was indicted in federal court on this thing that happened, uh, which was a reflection of my dishonesty or whatever. And you wouldn't want the public to know about the, deta- the sordid details about what happened. Now, that in Steve Bannon's situation, that assumes at some point in the future he would say, I don't want anybody to know that I was best friends with President Trump. And I doubt that's going to happen ever. But you never know. He could, he could like say, Trump, who's that? I don't know that guy. You know, yeah. So down the road, it could, could happen. You know, I, I, you have no evidence that I know I ever a guy knew named him. DT, but uh, <laughs> Trump, I never heard that name. Yeah, I mean, he might want to, you might want to do that. He might want to take that position. Like, never knew him, never met him. <laughs> even though, even though, um, you know, we we hung out and played beer pong together. Never heard of the guy, but <laughs> so, um, well, just to switch gears here. There was something, there was a development, I think we talked about it at one point, year, not years ago, but months ago at least, um, about how New York State, which, and this is a microcosm for the whole country, but it's how New York State had a law on the books, a statute that prevented police conduct records from being, dis- excuse me, from being revealed to defense attorneys or to the media or whatever. You know, and of course, New York City was 
a massive police force. There's 36,000 members. Tremendously in, unionized as and, well. Oh, that's another subject that I want to cover, mm -hmm. police unions, but um, which are really on the wane right now. But anyway, uh, but this law prevented knowing about what disciplinary action was taken, um, what what charges were made, what the final results were. And in New York State, in the city, they have a civilian complaint review board, um, which supposedly is supposed to, you know, advise what kind of discipline there should be, and the commissioner makes the final decision. Well, of course, this department was just rife with corruption for many, many years, um, and also just like, many, many bad acts by their officers, you know, whether they're racist attacks or whatever, but they were always under seal. Those were not, never, and now the New York legislature, following the George Floyd murder, um, repealed that law. And now those records are starting to come out. But even though this was repealed, they're still fighting which records are gonna come out. Right. Like it's not all records, is it, if, like it should be. Yeah. You know, and they're like, oh, well, this is going to hurt, you know, officers' careers. And so, well, well, I guess they should have thought of that before they beat up a citizen. I don't know. Well, right. That's a very good argument <laughs> that if, if, if you know as, an, as a cop in New York City that you can, whatever happens, it's going to go through this bureaucratic process and then the commissioner ultimately has to decide what happens and it will never be shared with the public. Doesn't that really encourage someone who a, a would-be a uh, bad actor to go ahead and follow. Well, let's look at the officer that choked out Eric Garner mm -hmm. on Staten Island. Um, and by, by choked out, I mean literally choked him to death. Mm -hmm. And um, for five years... You don't mean choked out in a good way. You mean, no, okay, no, gotcha. no. Um, for five years, he mostly sat at a desk getting full pay while his thing went through this bureaucratic process and ultimately was not fired. Mm-hmm. Was not and not charged right. with anything mm -hmm. ever. Which, and this which, is on video. Goes, this is a videotaped yeah, yes. murder well, on the streets. We could have doctored our own videotape. It's probably <laughs> so, not very so, reliable. So to say that police in this country um, need more transparency is kind of an understatement. Well, yeah. I mean, the rest of us have to worry about that all the time. I mean, if, if you have yeah. a regular job at a regular business at a regular situation, yeah, uh, you can bet that if you do commit misconduct, it's going to be part of your quote-unquote file, and there's no law that, that prohibits that from being, you know, following you to the next job if, if you happen to get another job. You know, it's just kind of the way things work in America, right? You know, you, you rise or fall based on your reputation. Like a judge I know once said, uh, you know, I was on time and the prosecutor was late. And he said, uh, well... You know, Attorney O'Bear, um, it can take a lifetime to build a reputation and one second to lose it all. And I said, are you referring to the prosecutor being late? And he says, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just speaking out loud. But I knew what he meant, right? <laughs> but, you know, your reputation for... I, that just fascinates me that there could have been such a lack of foresight that you could have a system that encourages people acting with impunity uh, and doing whatever they want and and having trust in the, the inadequacy of the disciplinary system of the police department. You know, relying on that as a means to basically do... Now, you know, you'll hear it, and I, I don't know about new school cops, but old school cops would say, 
you know, it's a necessary evil. You got to break the rules because it's a battle zone out there. And, you know, all the reasons why, why engage in reform when we can just take matters into our own hands? You know, we're, we're the foot soldiers of the war on drugs yeah. and the war on this and the war on that. So, yeah, of course, we got to bend the rules now and then. Just It's to, kind of a... It's, just to, it's, and you'll thank me later when your family's safe. I don't know if this is a uniquely American thing, but it kind of... It kind of seems to be because we, we, um, just our history and geography and the way we've expanded as as we pushed you know Native Americans out of their lands and we took over and blah blah blah. There was this um, uh, philosophy is the wrong word. Well, we got rid of them but kept their mascots <laughs> for a while. <laughs> philosophy is the wrong word, but it's more like um, uh, lifestyle, I guess, of you know taking care of yourself. And it was self-reliance and all that stuff. And that's all good on a certain level. But I'm referring it more to, you know, well, somebody wrongs me, I'm killing them. Mm-hmm. You know? And that was, that was, and so now the police feel like that's an appropriate thing. And then in some cultures, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Honor killings. Oh, yeah. In, um, you know, certain Muslim countries. Yep. And, uh, you know, if you, if you wrong one of their women folk, yep. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, you're about to get your head cut off. So... Right. Um, uh, but I guess I want us to aspire to a higher level of, and if we're going to have police, if we're going to have, um, police structures and criminal laws that are going to be enforced, they need to be, first of all, they need to be fair. Second of all, they need to be enforced fairly, which I think is lost on a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, (laughs) You know, everybody, I hear this argument all the time. It's like, well, you know, it's like, yeah, the, the war on drugs isn't bad. Drugs are horrible. It's just like, and look, it's only black people that are getting arrested for it. So it must be like a black thing. And it must be, you know, they're just, so they're just naturally criminals. So you've heard this from intelligent adults. That, I have. The people that have gone to high school and college I, and all I, that stuff. You know, presumably. I didn't inquire about education, <laughs> but I have heard this many times. Oh, boy. Yeah. And, and, and I guess my point is, is that, you know, I don't think people that don't work in the system don't understand how, okay, we have a set of laws, but how those are enforced are almost as important as how they're written. Mm-hmm. So if we have laws that say, okay, these drugs are illegal um, and uh, we're only going to enforce them in these underprivileged, underserved and impoverished neighborhoods and we're going to enforce them there like with a vengeance mm-hmm. then you know how is how is that fair in the overall scheme of that statute mm-hmm. when it's 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 almost like it was written for this neighborhood but right <laughs> well that's what the the crack cocaine uh, well yes disparity and which by the way which, all about. which by the way there's a fantastic netflix special called crack like crack corruption and something else but it was it's like a history of crack yeah. and i mean you 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 that was literally a matter of writing uh, more se- uh, severe sentences based on where people lived and you know where they well they also got into the the unbelievably disturbing fact of the iran contra affair mm. where we sold mepin, weapons to iran which is you know <laughs> <laughs> like our arch enemy now. And, you know, because they were fighting the Iraqis, we took, we skimmed the profits off of that. We funded the Contras in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the Contras were, were taking our money and growing cocaine and shipping it to the United States. Right. 
And so the whole just say no thing was like, <laughs> was like I'm sorry. You don't have to do drugs because we're, we're funneling money down there we're, to make sure there's lots there's of them. There's going to be lots. And then we're going to hire more police to arrest you for yeah, it. arrest you for it. Then everybody's happy. <laughs> well, let's take a break. We'll be right back. We are back for one final hoorah. Hoorah. Of the last legal. Little bit, last little bit of fun. Chibber chabber. Before we send you on your way to actually enjoy the weekend rather than suffering through our. Well, you know, it's almost <laughs> golf season. So I think that, you know, I think people are probably turning their eyes towards that and maybe digging, fact, digging up a garden I'm or getting their boat out. I'm hoping that you can just finish the show on your own because I want to go play. Because you're going to, because, yeah, I was wondering what that what that seven iron was in your hand. Um, <laughs> and the, and I thought the, you were going to attack somebody, but no. And the no. cappy cap that I got out of <laughs> no, you were just the Argyle. Trying. <laughs> just trying to look sporty. I'm being, I'm getting ready in case it gets warm. My threshold for where I will not play golf any colder, it's 40 degrees. I will play golf as long as it's 40 degrees. If it's, if it's less than that, I just won't do it. So. Okay. It's because well, I'm getting it's, old. It's more than 40 <laughs> degrees right now. Right. See so ya. why are you here? <laughs> Okay. Well, there's still some snow on the ground on the golf course oh, anyway. That's true. <coughs> well, you yeah. know, you have those colored glow balls like yeah. they're lime green and or something. It probably ruins orange. the heck out of the golf course if you're stomping all over it while it's not. You know, they haven't done all the stuff they got to do to it. But oh boy, um, I reminds me of uh, a joke that I recently heard, which is actually an old joke. But um, this guy is walking down the street and right in front of him this other dude has a heart attack and and he's like grabbing his chest he's like ah you gotta call 911 hold on buddy we're gonna get through this 911 how may i help you yeah i got a guy here he's having a heart attack well where are you located i'm on eucalyptus avenue uh can you spell that for me long silence he goes hold on a second while i i drag him over to pine street but i'm bump all right so uh, we were talking Iran Contra. We were talking war on drugs. Yeah. We were talking all kinds of. Well, let's turn let's turn home a little bit. Okay. Um, to Kyle Rittenhouse, mm. whose trial has now been set. I didn't know that. When's it set for? It is set for November. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and and so uh, I'm trying to do the math about how long that'll be. So it'll be a little over a year. I forgot exactly. Yeah, yeah, a year and a half, something like that. Since, um, and of course, his entire defense is self-defense, and I, I think it's a fascinating case study in the um, the law of self-defense and what constitutes self-defense. Because when you use those two words, it sounds very straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> somebody comes at you and you strike back, or you see that hit coming and you hit first or something like that or you shoot or you use a other weapon mm-hmm. or something yeah. and and it sounds very simple and the but law in- says it's the same as if nothing ever happened you you are so entitled to use self defense under the right set of circumstances well that's a that legal justification l- literally for the use of force not guilty at all it's even, not like you're less guilty even you're just not guilty. it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a literally a legal justification for the use of force, even deadly force. And so, um, but, so it sounds simple, but when you try to apply it in an actual, almost any situation, it gets really messy really fast because the tiniest little thing can turn your whole defense upside down. Yeah. 
And um, so with, with Kyle Rittenhouse's case, let's start with the fact he shows up on the streets, even though it's during the protest, but he shows up on the streets with an automatic weapon. Right. Okay? So right off the bat, you know, I mean, his self-defense thing is really in serious jeopardy, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, some other people, including one of his victims, had guns, um, but um, uh, but it's, it seems to me that even a hardcore Second Amendment juror is going to have a hard time with somebody showing up with a gun and then claiming self-defense. Like, I think part of his self-defense is that two of the people, if you remember, there's three people involved. One is, is sort of separated. The other two are more together. So the first one, he shoots at this guy who was attacking him, but he was unarmed, and he shot and killed him. And then these other two guys are trying to tackle him in the streets, and one guy had a gun, and he shot both of them. He shot one guy through the arm, and he killed the other guy. And, um, and so and the guy had a handgun or whatever, uh, but they weren't, he wasn't pointing the handgun at him. They were like trying to tackle him, right? And so is tackling to be met with an automatic weapon? There's not an easy answer there. You know, but let me ask you this. I, I, if I recall... I think a lot of people are going to have a problem with that. They, they probably will. But the, if, I, if I recall correctly, there's an issue here. And it's been a while since I've had a case where something like this would be applicable. But um, is it not true that in order to claim self-defense, a number of things have to align perfectly? Like you, you have to have literally like no other option, no other reasonable option under the circumstances. But is there, isn't, again, isn't, there, reasonable. isn't there a doctrine of clean hands involved here where one has to be lawfully uh, capable of possessing that particular weapon under the circumstances? Um, not in the self-defense statute. Right. But... Um, but that, but we're, not sure. we're, we're, we're talking about a privilege, okay? Yeah. That's, it's the privilege of self. I mean, I don't mean a privilege like the way we talk about other privileges. It's something that under the law we talk about as a, a defense that falls within the realm of one has the quote unquote privilege of engaging in self defense. When we use it in those terms, one has to be in a position where they are not. Well, let me put it this way uh, you, you're robbing a bank, and the bank teller comes up with a shotgun and points it in your face, you freak out and you shoot the bank teller. Is that is that self-defense when you're in the middle of robbing the bank? You know, you see the overlapping I, I issues. Do, I do. And, and, and how? And I think people have made similar arguments, you know, mm-hmm. like people committing crimes where, you know, um, I mean, I, th- I bet you the cops. Well, there's the so cops many- in Brianna Taylor's case, for yeah. example. Right. That, that's, that was whole thing was just a travesty that's just unbelievable yeah. that could i mean a combination of overzealousness and just sheer incompetence all in one nice little package there yeah um but it's so many other of these other concepts in the law you touched on something that uh, really rings true to me when you said that it seems like it would be a very straightforward application that you know a person who subjectively you know, in their own mind, perceived that it was necessary to use deadly force under the circumstances to save their own life or somebody else's life. Pretty straightforward, right? But that, along with a lot of other things, I'll give you some examples. Um, 
an impossibility defense or a necessity defense or a voluntary intoxication defense if, if it vitiates a an intent requirement that someone would have or for that matter anything that um, is uh, coined as an affirmative defense the law uh, almost has a, a an attitude about those defenses because the it's as if you can you can feel the legislatures when they're debating these things or if they're going to be allowed by, by virtue of case law carving out this sort of privilege that exists that they don't want too many people to get away with it you know you got to be careful that this isn't some idea that's going to float out there in the public and be people be like man we want to make it look like we're given rights ship has come in i just figured out how to commit the perfect crime and the supreme court laid it all out for me by telling me how I can claim self-defense or something else. I mean, even alibi is crazy because if you have an alibi, if you have a legit alibi, that means you're not guilty at all. Like you should not have ever been charged. Yet you have to, um, you know, in the interest of fairness, you have to give the prosecution and all of their cronies uh, a chance to a chance to try and tear it apart. Yeah, and you know you have to give them enough notice to say, oh, by the way, I'm going to claim an alibi. I've never understood that. I mean, yeah. it, the I, burden of proof's on them, and they're like, well, just to keep it fair, just to make it so. You know, when you I hear, a, yeah, when a lower I, whenever I hear somebody from a court of appeals or a cop or whatever, it's like we have to make this fair for both sides. No, we don't. No, it's not. No, we don't. Fair for both the sides. whole point is it's not supposed to be. <laughs> and I love it when they're complaining about like I need more notice because of blah blah blah. And you know. Y- we have we have a very robust firm, John. You know that. Yes. I mean, we have very talented lawyers. We we have investigators that work for us, paralegals, administrative staff. And one particularly lot, talented partner. Oh yes. Well, one of the two partners is brilliant. <laughs> I will I will agree with that. But um, you know, we're not a lightweight. You know, somebody that hung a shingle out yesterday. But the point is, we're a powerhouse. We go in there still. The, the odds are stacked if you're talking about sheer volume of resources because the government has unlimited, infinite resources when it comes to doing whatever they want to do. Yeah. And we hear complaints like, All you have well, to do is pick up the phone. Judge, why can't you order the defense to make a more timely disclosure of this? Uh, man, you know, as if they need some fairness in this whole thing. Now, it depends on how you're using Nobody likes to say that fairness is bad because fairness is good. We're always taught that. But in the context of criminal justice, when people start talking about how it needs to be more fair to the prosecution, what yeah. they're really talking about is they would rather not have something which is the bedrock of our criminal justice system, and that is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, including the burden of production of the evidence comes from the state and not the defense. What they really just want is a series of nonstop convictions yep. with um, everybody pleading guilty. And, and a bunch of defense lawyers. Which, by the way, tired. brings up the trial penalty, which I want to devote a whole show to. Oh, let's do that. Let's okay. Do that. But it'll have to be next time because we're out of time. Well, have fun on the golf course, <laughs> sir. All right. See ya. Have a, have a good weekend, everybody. You can tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, it's been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.